Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 22nd of January 2023, 9.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, The Samaritan Woman. So, we're in our third week of our series entitled, Outsiders Come to God. If you were here for Tim's opening talk of the series, uh, you will have heard that he was celebrating the fact that he was going first, because the challenge to bring a fresh perspective on this theme would get harder as the eight weeks went by. Well, I'm not panicking about this talk, but I might be by the final week of the series, as I'm also down for talk number eight. But actually, I don't think we need to worry because each of the passages and characters which have been chosen bring new light on this subject matter and the challenge it brings. For example, today's outsider, the Samaritan woman, has lots to teach us about what it means to be an outsider on a variety of levels, as well as the response of Jesus, which we are challenged to model. I'm sure we can all think of times when we felt like an outsider, with varying degrees of severity and impact. On the most superficial level, it could be being the only one not to have watched the must-see TV programme that everyone is talking about at work. Or even more uncomfortably, the only one not joining in with a dodgy brand of humour or a close-to-the-wire conversation. But for many, there are far more insurmountable and challenging barriers to face, such as gender, race, and class. I was thinking back to times when I felt like an outsider to greater or lesser degrees. When I was at secondary school at Wimbledon High, I wasn't quite clever enough to be in the elite clique, but I was definitely too geeky to be in the cool clique and I certainly wasn't alone in this betwixt and between situation. Or I've been in work situations where a new head has wanted to have a fresh start with a fresh team and staffing reshuffles have left me feeling more marginalized and out of favor. But it's actually a more trivial example that I remembered which made me think of parallels with the story of the Samaritan woman in our passage. So let me share it with you. We're three weeks on from New Year's Eve now. In my experience, the more relaxed and chilled a New Year celebration you plan, the better it goes. It's the years when I've planned or agreed to something more elaborate that it turns out to be an anticlimax. The most obvious example of this dates back to my teenage years when I spent New Year's Eve in Norfolk. My friend Nia and I were invited by friends we'd made on summer camp, randomly both called Adam, to attend the New Year's Eve party taking place in the semi-palatial home of the family of one of the Adams. So Nia's the one with the orange arrow, I'm at the front with the purple arrow, Adam with the palatial house is the one with the yellow arrow, and the other Adam, who, whose look will make more sense later in the story, has the green arrow. 
So we were persuaded to attend this house party because the Adam in question told us his parents were holding a soiree for their friends. So he had been allowed to invite a few friends to have a party in another wing of the house. And there would be plenty of room for us to stay, we were told. So it sounded like a very swish, grown up and exciting thing to do. We caught the train and were met by Adam and his dad and then headed off to their manor house full of excitement. To cut a long story short, the trip was an unmitigated disaster. The teenagers were definitely meant to be out of sight, as Mia and I discovered when we took a wrong turn and ended up in a room full of people dressed to the nines and sipping champagne. And the reason we were wandering the corridors was because it turned out that the two Adams' idea of a New Year's Eve party involved one room of people playing games akin to Dungeons and Dragons and another room where people were headbanging to thrash metal music. You might not guess, but neither of those choices were particularly to my taste, nor Nia's. Uh, so after our accidental gate crashing of the soiree, we spent the rest of the night in the kitchen. Oh, and the plenty of room for us to stay turned out to be sleeping in very uncomfortable armchairs as all the spare bedrooms were taken by the honoured adult guests. So when we were driven back to the station by Adam's dad the next day, we were certainly feeling like outsiders who'd wasted a lot of pocket money on our train fare and would have been better off staying in New Malden. At that party, there were barriers to our participation and enjoyment imposed on us due to age and class. There were also obstacles due to the narrow and niche options on offer rather than a more accessible and welcoming scenario. But there were also barriers of our own making in that we immediately retreated and withdrew rather than venturing to try to involve ourselves in the celebration in any way. As we turn to the story of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with Jesus, we can also see different forms of barrier and obstacle which result in the woman's position as an outsider, with far more significant implications than a ruined New Year's Eve. So we will begin by looking for those barriers, then see how Jesus breaks them down, and finally consider the challenge for us both as individuals and as a church. So firstly, let's look at the barriers which were causing the Samaritan woman to be an outsider. The most obvious barrier is right there to see in the title ascribed to the woman. We don't get to hear her name, unlike the Jewish man Nicodemus, whose meeting with Jesus is described in the preceding chapter of John's Gospel. Rather, she is simply titled a Samaritan woman. To realize the significance, we need to understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans originated from the period of Jewish history when the Northern Kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. Many of the Jews were exiled, so the Assyrians brought in people from other nations to intermarry with the remaining Jews. The resulting people of mixed race came to be known as the Samaritans. In the eyes of the Jews, these Samaritans 
were impure half-breeds and collaborators who it was forbidden to marry and who they would go out of their way to avoid having any dealings with. They believed the Samaritans had developed a compromised version of Judaism. Prohibited from worshipping in Jerusalem, they had built a temple on Mount Gerizim instead. Their scripture was in Aramaic rather than Hebrew and differed from the Torah, and they did not accept the poetic or prophetic books as scripture. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as outside of God's favour and consideration. Hostility built between the Jews and the Samaritans to such an extent that the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple in 128 to 129 BC. If you remember Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, this backstory makes it clear why Jesus chose a Samaritan as the most challenging and unlikely example of being a good neighbour. In our passage, we see a snapshot of these centuries of hostility and prejudice in the opening exchange between Jesus and the woman in verses 7 to 9. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If being a Samaritan is enough of a barrier, the fact that she's also a woman adds to her inferiority in the eyes of such a patriarchal society. And Samaritan women were specifically considered ritually unclean, which explains the woman's confusion when she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. It would have been extraordinary enough to the woman that Jesus, as a man, had initiated a conversation with her, but to be seemingly willing to share utensils and therefore make himself unclean too would have been unthinkable. And added to these gender-based barriers, we later learn, through Jesus' insight into the woman's life story, that she has been married five times. We do not hear the details of whether these marriages have ended in being widowed or in divorce or a mixture of the two, but any of these scenarios would have pushed her even further to the margins of society. As a Samaritan woman with multiple marriages behind her, in the eyes of the, Jew, she, of the Jews, she really was the lowest of the low, the unworthiest of the unworthy the outsider of outsiders. But there's one more obstacle which Jesus elicits from the woman. He knows that she feels unworthy and outside of God's consideration herself, alongside the racial and societal barriers that need to be overcome. He asks her to fetch her husband, not because he wants to bring shame and ridicule on her, and not because he wants to speak judgment on her, but rather because he knows that this area of her life is one which she feels is a barrier to acceptance, both by society and by God. According to tradition, 
it would be uncommon for women to draw water from the well in the noonday heat, but rather earlier or later in the day. So some commentators suggest that the woman's journey to the well at noon is a sign of her seeking to avoid interaction with other women. But Jesus also recognises the deeper, unquenched thirst within the woman, hence his talk of living water. She speaks of her knowledge of the religious differences between Samaritans and Jews, and of the coming of the Messiah who would explain everything. But she has tried to quench and satisfy the thirst within her with temporary human relationships, rather than with an eternal relationship with God. She has added her own obstacles and barriers to those other long-established ones, and Jesus needs to break these down in order to offer her welcome and inclusion. So let's consider just how Jesus went about breaking down these various barriers. And the first thing to notice is that in verse 4 it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. We need to notice that because it's not actually geographically true. Jesus is travelling from Judea to Galilee, and the quickest, most direct route was certainly through Samaria. But it's not the way most Jews would have travelled. They would have taken a route which avoided transit through Samaria, even though this involved a six-day journey. Such was their hostility towards the Samaritans. So when verse 4 tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria, this was for a divine purpose rather than physical or geographical necessity. He was acting on the command he would later give his followers, which we heard in our reading from Acts 1, to be witnesses for God in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has to travel through Samaria in order to demonstrate that the living water he has to offer is available for all who will worship in spirit and truth, whether they be Jew or Samaritan. Jesus clearly signals his complete lack of discrimination by engaging a Samaritan woman in conversation, being willing to share her utensils in order to drink from the well, speaking into her deepest needs and insecurities, and offering her welcome, inclusion, and restoration. Jesus doesn't bow to the demands of racial division, societal expectations, or hurtful stigma. He simply sees a woman who is in need of knowing that the way to God is open and without barrier. And he knows that through her, many others will come to know this truth too. It's interesting to note that what some people take to be a word of judgment and correction on Jesus's part towards the woman actually turns out to be the thing she cites as key to her testimony when she rushes to tell her compatriots about Jesus and the fact he might be the Messiah. It's easy to read Jesus's challenge to the woman to fetch her husband as a criticism on his behalf of her relationship status but that's not how the woman interprets it. Rather, 
He has spoken into her deepest insecurity and anxiety and shown her that it need not be an obstacle to her finding welcome and restoration from God and drinking of the spring of living water. He recognises that she has been seeking refreshment and fulfilment in the wrong places and shows her the ultimate source of absolute refreshment and fulfilment in the love and acceptance of God. And the woman responds by symbolically abandoning her water jar, having had her real thirst quenched in a far deeper way, then hurrying into town to share her experience. And the thing she pins her testimony on is the fact that Jesus has told me everything I've ever done. She would have entered their conversation fearing that anyone would expose her personal life, but departs from it liberated from shame and isolation, with the extra obstacles and barriers she herself has built now broken down by Jesus' refusal to exclude and banish. One last thing to note before we move on to consider the challenge to us is that this is the longest conversation between Jesus and another person recorded anywhere in the Gospels. The offering of hope and welcome to outsiders isn't an afterthought or an optional extra. It is a vital, intrinsic and key aspect of the mission Jesus has for us and one which both deserves and needs time, effort and prioritising. So what does all of that mean for us, both as individuals and as the church? Are we aware of and alert to all the various ways in which people can feel like outsiders and beyond God's consideration? Who are the Samaritans in our society? In our friendship groups and social circles, we naturally tend to gravitate to those who are similar to us, with whom we have plenty in common. So it's unsurprising that our natural urge is for church to be like that too. It seems easier and more straightforward to worship with, serve with, and enjoy fellowship with those who look like us, think like us, act like us, and have life experience like us. But Jesus teaches us time and again of the need to cross boundaries. Like Jesus, we have to go through Samaria. We have to break down the barriers which exclude and offer a welcome to all. We have to consider how our church building, services and activities can be accessible to as many as possible. What about those with learning differences or sensory needs? What about those with emotional or psychological or physical challenges? What about those with Alzheimer's or dementia? What about those crippled by guilt or fear or debt or loneliness? Barriers of race, status and gender need breaking down. But that is just scratching the surface. 
And we also need to be aware of the obstacles people build up for themselves, which result in them feeling outside of God's love and consideration. Like Jesus, we need to encourage open and honest reflection without judgment, so that deep-seated anxieties and insecurities can be met with God's loving welcome and restoration. And let's not forget to consider the obstacles which are also lurking in the corners of our own lives, stopping us from fully experiencing or trusting God's invitation to come in. However long we've been coming to church, however long we've been a Christian, there will still be areas of our lives which are outside, either because we're ashamed to let God in or because we're not ready to hand over control. The Samaritan woman learnt the true liberation to be found in opening up these areas of insecurity or shame to God's perfect light. And we can too. Amen.